0: I'm Mark Vinette, and this is The Story of America. In this special crossover episode, join me and Mike karate of A History of Italy as we turn back the clock to 1492 and Christopher Columbus, who sailed the ocean blue during the exciting age of exploration. But before we take a deep dive into his city of birth, Mike Corradi would like to tell my audience about his podcast.
1: Hello, all you wonderful listeners. After that wonderful, wonderful introduction by Mark, mine will probably be a bit embarrassing. Anyway, as Mark said, my name is Mike Corradi. I am the producer of a History of Italy podcast. It is a chronological history of our messy, messy peninsula from the fall of the Western Roman Empire all the way, if we ever get there, to the present day. We're more or less around the 13th and 14th centuries, so we've done quite a bit so far, but we're looking forward to taking you on the rest of the journey. And I must say, I'm really, really pleased to hook up with Mark for this special crossover episode.
0: Here is a short synopsis of the Columbus story. Legendary explorer Christopher Columbus was born in 1451 in the Italian sea town of Genoa, and began sailing as a teenager and eventually became an experienced cartographer, seafarer, and navigator. Columbus believed that sailing west would be a faster way to get to the lucrative Asian trade markets. Spain's King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella were intrigued with the idea and gave Columbus the financing for the voyage. In August of 1492, Columbus set sail across the Atlantic Ocean. After two months, he and his crew arrived in the present-day Bahamas, convinced this was India. They were greeted by the native population, and Columbus initiated trading. Between 1492 and 1504, he made a total of four voyages across the Atlantic. Although he never reached mainland North America, his voyages quickly led to the opening up of the continent to European colonization. Mike, where is Genoa?
1: Okay, well... Let's start with a little bit of geography. So, you know, Italy is traditionally seen, and it is, a long boot. And you imagine this boot sort of pulling back eastwards to give a nice kick to the island of Sicily. So, got the boot in mind? Now, take a huge piece of broccoli, about three times as wide as the boot, and stick it in the top of the boot, and that's what Italy looks like, basically. That broccoli up the top is the part that stretches out into Europe, and that is the Alps. Genoa is on the top left where the broccoli slopes back down into the boot. You could also say it's the left armpit of Italy. That part of Italy is the Ligurian coast, the coast of Liguria. Liguria is one of the 20 Italian regions. Quite a nice place, very temperate area because it's protected from the inland part by the mountains. It's on the sea, so it's kind of the Florida of northern Italy and the elderly like to go and holiday there. Italian people don't move around a lot. They don't actually retire there, but they like to go there for holidays. And you'll also find the very famous and beautiful Cinque Terre in the area. The regional seat of the region of Liguria is Genova in Italian, or Genoa as we say in English.
0: Mike, what do you say to all our listeners who don't like broccoli? (laughs) Uh, Well, it does look a lot like broccoli,
1: so you don't have to eat it. Just visualize it. Okay, fine. Tell us how and when Columbus's birth city was founded. Well, we mentioned the name of the region that Genoese is in, that is Liguria. And the name comes from pre-Roman people called the Liguri, who actually covered quite a bit of land from southern France down through the Piedmont area to modern-day Liguria, down into Tuscany, and up into the region I currently live in, which is Emilia-Romagna. Indeed, we have a few legends about the Liguri also in our area, and they would have covered this vast area. Now, around the year 500 BCE, that is when the port city of Genoa was founded. It's not entirely clear whether it was actually these Liguri Who founded the city, or if they took over a trading post of the Etruscans. But in any case, around the year 500 is where we can approximately place the founding of the city of Genoa.
0: Are there any sites or ruins from that era still in the city? Not actually inside
1: the city and clearly marked, but when you do dig in Italy, you're bound to find something. And very, very often we do find Etruscan ruins under Roman ruins or maybe ruins built alongside or on top of Etruscan ruins.
0: I'm really fascinated by the Etruscans and to know that Genoa has a connection with them is fascinating.
1: Consider they were, you know, all over the place in, in the time of their expansion. So all of that area up towards the north, the Piedmont area, the Emilia area, the Tuscan area. So they had there's quite widespread evidence of, of the, the presence of the Etruscans.
0: What was the Republic of Genoa and the Italian Peninsula like following the collapse of the Roman Empire in 476 and during the Middle Ages?
1: Like many places in Italy towards the end of the Roman Empire, the lack of power of central power meant that the bishops, so that the church basically was taking over control of a lot of the peninsula, and that was also the case in Liguria in general in the area around Genoa. And indeed we have evidence of the bishop of that area writing to the first Let's call him king. It's not really the correct thing to say, but the first ruler of Italy after the fall of the empire, who was a barbarian general by the name of Odoacer, and he ruled for a while. Then we had the invasion by the Goths of Theodoric, and so Genoa would have been part of the kingdom of Theodoric, also known as Theodoric the Great. He lasted from about 493 to around 525, And after his death, not long after his death, the Gothic War started, which was a war in which the Byzantine, so the Eastern Roman Empire, wanted to reunite the empire. And they managed to take all of Italy from the Goths, but soon lost it when in 568, another barbarian people came into Italy, and that was the Lombards. Genoa stayed under Byzantine control after the Lombard invasion, but eventually it did fall to the Lombards in 638 under their king Rothery, who was also the first to write down the laws that, until that point, the laws of the Lombards had been all oral. Then the poor Lombards were kicked out by the Franks, called in by the popes, who had finally come to the realization that they could no longer look to the Eastern Empire for help. So they relied, the popes relied on the Franks. The Franks kicked the Lombards out. And for a while, Genova was ruled over by a series of Frankish counts. And when they also got distracted and were doing things elsewhere for a long period, the area, Liguria, Piemonte, were ruled over by a powerful family called the Obertenghi. Then as uh, things went along, Genoa, like Venice before her, started to develop a certain level of independence. And Genoa always looked to the sea. From the very beginning, they weren't that interested in what was going on inland. However, the fact that early sort of in the seven and eight hundreds, the Saracens, the, the Arabs were patrolling the seas, raiding, they'd even conquered Sicily meant that for a long period, Genoa was sort of bottled up and wasn't able to unleash its potential like Venice was freer to do on, on the other coast of Italy. Just a reminder, here we're talking Genoa is the Tyrrhenic coast, whereas Venice would be the Adriatic coast, which are two seas within the Mediterranean, basically. But eventually they managed, with the help of also other Italian city-states, to sort of break out of this control of the, of the Arabs. And they started to extend, Genoa started to extend its influence, first over Corsica, then parts of Sardinia. And when slowly the Mediterranean opened up, also further east, all the way to Constantinople, with various, we can call them colonies. Although they weren't political colonies, it was more a question of trade and commerce, and not always controlled by the Genoese authorities themselves. It was often a case of a family, an important Genoese family, branching out, setting up a business, and then sort of the the colony or whatever you could call it, growing from those individual family businesses. So it was a mix of Genoa actually operating in these areas, but also the Genoese families operating in these areas.
0: When did it exactly become a so-called city-state? Like many city-states,
1: it's sort of hard to pinpoint. You could place it, if you want, in the period of sort of the 11th century when we have what was called what was known as the communal period for genoa eleventh century, maybe a bit early, maybe sort of beginning of the twelfth and that's the period when cities started to nominate the consuls, so the first period of the communes was the consular period when they would elect these officials that would govern the city for a limited period, usually about a year. so if you really wanted to say that's more or less when it started, you could place it in the early twelfth century, but in reality, you know. Right after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, many parts of Italy started to become independent. So it's a bit also like Venice. It's a bit hard to actually pinpoint the the exact date. And as a historian, Mark, you know very well that you have to sort of at a certain point choose a moment. So if we wanted to choose that moment arbitrarily, if you want, probably the beginning of the 12th century. And that's when they also started to come into contact and obviously friction with other city states such as Pisa which would eventually lead to, after continuous wars and fights, to a great battle won by Genova in 1284, the Battle of Melaria, which sort of put an end to Pisa's dreams of being a, a great maritime republic. Then, as things went on, there was a whole issue of the communes fighting against the Holy Roman emperors, for example, towards the end of the 12th century, we had Frederick Barbarossa fighting against the Lombard League, and Genoa was initially involved, but then, you know, wasn't too interested. They, they sort of have a history of looking towards the sea rather than inland. Then, in the 13th century, their commune moved, like other communes, from the consular period to the period of the Podesta, and that happened because Cities realized that all the infighting wasn't getting them anywhere, so they were starting to choose an elected official from elsewhere who theoretically could be above the factions and, and the warring parties. The 13th century also saw growing hostilities with Venice, also over questions in the East, in the Middle East, and also around Constantinople. And the wars with Genoa led up to the, the culmination, which was the Battle of Curzola, that was 1298, in which Genoa definitively defeated Venice, but with no real end result in the sense that everything went back to the status quo. Uh, the 13th century in Genoa also saw them get onto the whole wealth and Ghibelline business because they didn't want to be let out of that. And growing increasingly as an economic power to the point, for example, 1252 saw the first golden coin in Genoa. And I sometimes talk about, you know, the importance of having your own money that, you know, that really means independence in the end. So the first Genoese coin, 1252, although it never reached the importance that the, that the Florence would. Then Genoa started to experiment a bit with uh, another kind of diarchy, choosing two members of important families. And you could say that the real, let's say, great moment or the golden moment of Genoa which included the Battle of Curzol, in which they defeated Venice, was sort of end of the 13th century, 1297 to 1299, in which they had the diarchy of two powerful families, the Daria and the Spinola, working together there. Then the 14th century came along, and Genoa tried with nominating external signori. This is a term which sort of means lord, And uh, one of these, for example, was Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII, who kicked the bucket way too early, so he didn't get to be the Lord of Genoa for very long. They then tried with Charles of Anjou, but that also didn't uh, last very long. And then they managed to get their act together again, just in time to fight off the threat of the Aragonese, who, along with the French, had started to operate and expand into Italy. Then basically to get us up to Columbus's time to Cristoforo, Columbus, Colombo, and his time. Geneva tried, was governed by France, then by Milan with the rising power of the Visconti, and then basically back to self-governing in the period we're interested in, borrowing the figure of the Doge, the Doge, from Venice. And that brings us more or less up to the mid-15th century.
0: Let's step back to the second half of the first millennium. My audience know how important historical timelines are to me, It helps folks put things in perspective. So if we go back to the years 500 to 1000 in Genoa, we know that period is often referred to as the Dark Ages in England and other European countries. Would you say it was also a Dark Age for Genoa and Italy in general? (laughs) That's a
1: good good question. You know, it depends what you mean by dark. I don't think it was as dark as, as we've always wanted to make it out. Obviously, we had a situation in which a great society, you know, the Roman Empire, which had reached levels of sophistication, of architecture, of of law and, and populace. You know, I mean, Rome, at a certain point during the Augustan age, had reached a million inhabitants. So definitely we have a period in which there was going back. That level of sophistication was no longer possible. I mean, they know in Italy, they no longer had the engineers that could fix the roads, that could fix the aqueducts. They would just sort of show up and look at them and just not know how to fix these things. Then, you know, with the Lombard invasion, like I said, we had, again, air quotes, barbarian people coming in with no written laws, just oral laws, and ruling the country for so long. So I suppose in that sense, you could say it was a sort of dark age, but that doesn't mean, you know, nobody was studying, nobody was finding new ways to do things. Knowledge uh, was still there, but definitely it was a step back compared to what had been reached during the Roman Empire.
0: When you mention the Lombards and the Franks, what comes to mind for me is the Italian modern region or province of Lombardy. And the Franks remind me of Charlemagne. How do you connect those two? Charlemagne was the man who
1: defeated the last Lombard king. So basically, it was Charlemagne's father, Pepin, who was called in by the Pope to ask for protection from the Lombards. Because anybody in Italy who is looking to conquer the whole of the peninsula is eventually going to clash with the Pope. And the Pope, was always looking out for his state, making sure that whoever was around him wouldn't eventually try to take his state under their influence. And that was what was happening with the Lombards. Despite the fact, interestingly, that if you wanted to find a first step on the way to the creation of the papal states, it was actually the Lombards who did it. I mean, one of the first steps. And that was the so-called donation of sutri, what Happened was that the king, the Lombard king at the time, Lutprand, had taken the city of Sutri, which had been still under Byzantine influence. Because we must remember that although the Lombards defeated the Byzantines, the influence of the Byzantines in many coastal areas was still very strong for, for a long time. So, King Lutprand of the Lombards took the city of Sutri from the Byzantines, but when it was time to give it back, he didn't give it back to the Byzantines, but directly to the Pope. So, it was basically the first time in history that officially, because then there was a whole donation of Constantine business, which was a big fake, but it was the first time in official history that a king was giving land to the Pope. So that's how you tie in Charlemagne and the Lombards. Basically, the Franks were the ones that came in and booted out some of the Lombards, because then many of the Lombards who were never really into being united behind one king stayed on, and indeed many important Italian families of the later centuries would trace their lineage back to the Lombards. And basically, uh, for a long, long time, whenever Italians themselves and also other Europeans would refer to the Italians as the Lombards, even in the time of Dante Alighieri, for example. And today, one of the 20 regions I mentioned before is the region of Lombardy and the the, seat, the regional seat of Lombardy is the city of Milan.
0: Mike, could you describe the Genoa of the mid-15th century when Columbus was born in 1451?
1: So first of all, when we say Genova in, uh, in 1451, we don't mean just the city of Genova, but we mean a sort of, like we said before, a mini empire. More of an economic and trade empire than an actual political empire, but nevertheless an empire which would have included Corsica, parts of Sardinia, colonies all around the Mediterranean, and so on. And Genova was divided, like many cities, with internal divisions, With families lining up on either side. The main, the most important families at the time were those of the Adorno and the Campo Fregaso or or just Fregaso families. And like in many Italian cities, those internal divisions would line up with external divisions. So for example, the Fregaso were in line with the Anjou and the Adorno would have been more in line with the Aragonese. Uh, For example, Domenico Colombo. Cristoforo Colombo's father would have been a member of the Fregaso faction, let's say. And in this period, like Columbus later would, Genoa was already looking away from the Mediterranean towards the Atlantic. That was because the growing influence of the Turks in the East meant that the Italian city-states were being pushed out of that area. And so Geneva had already started experimenting with routes going out of the Mediterranean, going to Portugal, going to Flanders, going to England, and so moving away from the Mediterranean at that time. Christopher Columbus's father, Domenico, was, uh, I said, involved with the Fregasso, and they had also assigned him the control of a tower, inside the city and that's how we know more or less where we can identify Columbus's birthplace and it's interesting also to a quick consideration on on Italy at that time because you know when you think of all of the greatness of Italy that you see in films and books and video games etc this was the time because we must remember that Christopher Columbus was a very similar age for example to Leonardo da Vinci he was a very similar age to Lawrence the magnificent Lorenzo il Magnifico Machiavelli would be born just 18 years after Columbus. When Columbus was going back and forth across the Atlantic, that was when we saw the rise and fall of the Borgias. And then when Columbus started getting the idea of moving towards the Atlantic and exploring the Atlantic, a certain little artist known as Michelangelo was born as well. So that's the time in which you know we can place
0: Columbus and his Genoa. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us next time for part two of this special conversation. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the story.